exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In World News Today, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev said a new arms race could begin in the next decade if NATO and Moscow fail to agree on a joint missile shield, according to the BBC. In his annual speech to the nation, he said he had advocated a fully-fledged joint mechanism of cooperation at a recent NATO-Russia summit. In national news, President Barack Obama is calling his meeting with congressional Republicans a good start on efforts to work more closely to resolve differences over taxes, budget, and national security, according to the Associated Press. Appearing at the end of their lengthy meeting at the White House, Obama said he believed all the leaders president understand that the people sent a message in the elections that they want more results, not gridlock or unyielding partisanship. And in Michigan news, Sunday morning liquor sales in Michigan won't begin until late December at the earliest, according to the Associated Press. The new law will allow Sunday alcohol sales starting at 7 a.m. Previous law bans liquor sales from 2 a.m. to noon on Sunday. And today is the last day of Native American Heritage Month, or excuse me, Native American Heritage Month. Up next is a story that first aired on Exposure last March after an alternative spring break trip to a reservation in South Dakota. The last 500 years, the dysfunction, the disaster, the trauma, our people are, have been knocked off balance. So. I don't want to, you know, run down my reservation. It is, you know, reality. To be an Indian is not something wonderful to them. Tonight on Impact Exposure, hear the voices of Native America told as Michigan State University's alternative spring break volunteers bring you to the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. Being immersed in such a poverty-stricken area like, just kind of brings you back to reality and makes you realize what's important in life and how much just a little bit of your help can do for, for some of these people. So. Each year, MSU's Alternative Spring Break program sends around 250 students across the Western Hemisphere. One of the 23 trips is on the Rosebud Lakota Indian Reservation. Volunteer opportunities include working in a co-op, a school, a nursing home, and helping build houses. According to the U.S. Census, the Rosebud Reservation is one of the top five poorest counties in the nation. High rates of substance abuse, domestic violence, and suicide accompany the poverty in the area. MSU volunteer Caleb Artrip. You can see how poverty has played into their lives and the effects it's had and the issues they face and I think a lot of other areas in the world face, but at the significant level that you see it here, you just won't expect it especially in the USA. Russell Masartis leads Tree of Life Ministries. Tree of Life gave the volunteer opportunities for MSU alternative break students. Masartis explains the issues facing the Rosebud Reservation. 
The one biggest issue would probably be the shortness of life. For a woman, average life expectancy is 53, and for a man, it's 48 years of age. Most of the deaths here are caused by automobile accident attributed to alcohol. Melissa Redcloud knows the prevalence of drinking and driving. Obviously, I didn't see it coming, but I hear about, you know, before my car wreck, I heard about, you know, oh, so-and-so wrecked. And it's like so common, so, oh, yeah, so whenever I wrecked, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is what is reality. And after that, I was, like, realizing, you know, car wreck after car wreck, uh, suicide after suicide, girls getting raped, um, the alcohol, alcohol poisoning, just everything. That's whenever I started realizing, you know, that probably, you know, one of them could have been me. And obviously it was me because, you know, I, it split second. I was, you know, in my wheelchair. On Red Cloud's 18th birthday, she drove a car filled with a handful of intoxicated friends. The accident caused her to become a quadriplegic. Red Cloud is a 30-year-old who lives in a nursing home just off the reservation. Even though Red Cloud now spends her life in a wheelchair, she says in some ways it is better than living in the harsh life on the reservation. I always think, you know, where would I be if I wasn't in here? I would have, you know, probably was going around with the black eye and the hickey and I would probably not even get my education. I would probably be still chasing an abusive man that was there. I would probably have three, four kids behind me, you know, thinking, oh, it's okay to get EBT and you know, uh, live off the welfare. Red Cloud is a direct descendant of the Lakota leader, Chief Red Cloud. In 1968, Chief Red Cloud signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie. The treaty granted the Lakota people the rights to all unused federal property that had previously been native land. Despite her family's legacy, Red Cloud says it was hard to avoid the pressures and destruction reservation life brings. Masartis attributes the alcoholism to the poverty present on the Rosebud Reservation. People drink to, to just take the edge off of, of life. And because of that, uh, the, the way they drive, the, the way they live, the hopelessness of the situation, the fact that when they graduate from school there are no jobs, there's 80% unemployment, it's just a very sad place. This is the fourth poorest county in the entire United States about $8,400 per capita income in a household, and they, they, there's just so little money that they drink just to take the edge off of the, uh, the sharpness of life. Alcoholism is part of a complex series of problems which have led to the loss of Native American culture on the reservation. Fewer residents take part in Native religious ceremonies and Native languages are spoken less frequently in homes and in schools. These are results of colonial policies. In the late 1800s, U.S. officials outlawed some native ceremonies and religious practices. Dolores Kilsenwater, a community elder. And so I've always believed what my mother told me. And so I was happy that they're the, one of the families that went underground with our ceremonies. So when, uh, when they tried to, to really wipe us off the face of the earth, it was our spirituality that helped us survive. And people don't understand that. You know, at one time, we were able to communicate with the animals. It was like an ESP, the deer, even the trees. And to us, everything was sacred. And uh, that's why when the Europeans came, 
In the late 1870s, the federal government began sending native children to off-reservation boarding schools far from their families. While boarding schools for natives are no longer in place, Lola Quigley, a kindergarten teacher at St. Francis Indian School on Rosebud, says she still sees the effects of the boarding school system. They can't find many that are fluent speakers anymore, and uh, a lot of that went through the boarding school, and they were they were hit when they spoke their language. You know, they were they were mistreated all the way through. So they were brought down right away saying that white assimilation is what they put in them, that you do it like white people, not what you were doing before, and they're savage. And MSU Alternative Spring Break volunteer Paul Berger is worried about the future of Native children on the reservation. We first drove up and it was just gray, overcast, almost all abandoned buildings. There's one gas station that I didn't even see the single restaurant. There's just no opportunity there. Nobody has jobs for the youth. There's no mentors. They don't get a good education. And they grow up, no skills, no opportunity, and they just end up getting trapped in the cycle. And It's just depressing. However, Rosebud native Shane Redhawk is the owner of the single restaurant Burger mentioned and is trying to change the fate of youth on the reservation. Redhawk's restaurant is called the Buffalo Jump. Attached to the restaurant is the Sichangu Lakota Youth Center. Redhawk said his facility was able to be established with the help of Tree of Life and its volunteers. It's very beautiful and symbolic that uh, people across this uh, world are willing to come over here and make a difference. And for those of you who come from the colleges from all across the United States, um, some of you are doing a lot more for my homeland than some of my own people are. And it's good to hear that and see that, but it's also healing. We have to get over the division of, of our cultures you know, there's more, it's more about getting along, living together, coexisting on our Mother Earth. The Buffalo Jump restaurant was created to financially sustain the Lakota Youth Center. The center is an after-school program that offers classes in art and Lakota culture. While the restaurant and youth center opened its doors in December, Red Hawk was planning for the facility to be paid off in three years. Buffalo Jump Restaurant and the Sichungo Lakota Youth Center were so successful, within three months, the building was almost paid off. And this is Buffalo Jump Restaurant. We're trying to reteach our people to honor the buffalo. The Buffalo Nation's always teaching us how to be men, how to be people, how to learn that talk. What Wo Chantognake generosity. Chante is your heart. Wo Chantognake is giving from your heart. Tatanka, the buffalo. He taught us generosity or giving from our heart by taking care of our people, sacrificing himself, giving till it hurt. The mission for the Youth Center is to combat teen suicide and provide role models. The center also provides a safe atmosphere for young people to reclaim their Lakota culture and language. We're really, really trying to recreate that spark to really make our students love and honor this Lakota way of life. While Red Hawk is fluent in the Lakota language and actively participates in native ceremonies, he too was a part of the destructive cycle on the reservation. Red Hawk grew up in an alcoholic household and had his first drink when he was only three years old. At 14, Red Hawk fell into alcoholism. 
It wasn't until Red Hawk was in his late 20s that he recovered from alcoholism with the help of his traditional grandmother and by participating in native ceremonies. Red Hawk says he is an example that anyone can break the destructive cycle. He said he wants to lead by example and encourage those who are where he was almost a decade ago. One of our greatest Lakota leaders, Tashuka Witkoda, uh, his name was Crazy Horse, and he gave us a quote that、uh, I think is very important for us to remember. He said, The true measure of a man's character is not what he takes from his ancestors, but what he leaves for his future generations. Tonkashla Wakantanka said, It doesn't matter if you believe in me or not, I'm still here. I'm always here, so you need to learn to believe in yourselves. And he said, The only reason negativity will come back to you is if you bring it back. It's the same thing you see around on this reservation or even in the city. A lot of native peoples choose to drink, and all, negative things happen when they drink. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts. It just happens. And they, they go a week remorseful, saying, I, I shouldn't have done that. But then the next weekend comes, and guess what happens again? You know, it's just a ridiculous, silly cycle that needs to end sooner or later. I've stopped it in my life, but it doesn't mean I'm not affected by it. In our true Lakota way, I'm trying to teach them by being that example, being that role model that I don't have. While the youth center is in its beginning stages, Red Hawk hopes the center can help children and teens grow up in an environment like his daughter did. Red Hawk says his six year old daughter is able to embrace her culture because she grew up in a nurturing environment with the role models she needed. Our children, these children are living with lots of difficulty. That's what this song is about. Wana, wo chekiapo. Wana, wo chekiapo. Wana, wo chekiapo. Wana, wo chekiapo. Wana. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First, hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh,、uh, three, thanks. <laughs> Hey, didn't we、uh, have. Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you because I <coughs> thought maybe we could.、Uh, would you ever want to.、Um, I was wondering if, you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's、uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger、Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh. Sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Third floor. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. 
Impact Prime Time. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And coming up this Sunday at 3 p.m., the Chanticleer will be performing a Christmas show at Wharton Center. And on the phone is Matt Oltman. He is the music director of Chanticleer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So for those that may not be familiar, um, talk about Chanticleer. Well, Chanticleer is a male a cappella ensemble, 12 members strong, um, uh, we, where we sing. We have six countertenors who sing the soprano alto and alto parts, uh, what are normally assigned to probably women and choruses you might be more familiar with, and uh, of course tenors and basses as well. Uh, the group was founded 33 years ago in San Francisco, mostly to sing music from the Renaissance um, and other early music. Uh, the reason for this is because um, especially sacred music during the Renaissance was only ever sung by male voices. And so the founding members wanted to recreate uh, this sound, um, and that's and, and that's why we are an all-male acapella ensemble. <laughs> but it was very soon after the founding that the repertoire expanded beyond just music of the Renaissance. And one of the first uh, directions that it expanded was into holiday music for those very first Christmases. And ever since then, um, the holiday time has been a very, very special time for us. We do about... Uh, anywhere from 20 to 25 concerts all across the country during the month of December. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just it's a very special and wonderful music-making time. So you say um, that there are six countertenors that fill the alto and soprano part um, within the chorus. Is it pretty rare for males to be able to sing that high professionally? It is. I mean, it's somewhat rare, although in... in, in in the past decade or so, it's become less rare, especially with the introduction of countertenor voice in opera. Um, there, there are many, many, you know, um, wonderful countertenors singing, and, and especially reviving all those great operas by Handel and, and, and other Baroque composers that, that wrote for countertenor voices, um, orchestrati. And so it's it's somewhat it's somewhat less um, rare, uh, but still, as far as uh, you know, a choral ensemble, um, there aren't very many of us out there. <laughs> Um, the King Singers and uh, from England being, you know, probably the most well-known exception, um, uh, who sing this way. Unless, of course, you were raised high Episcopalian, because the the Anglican Church has uh, has continued its tradition of men and boys choirs, um, you know, throughout uh, to the present. And in fact, um, that sound of of, an, of Anglican men and boys choirs was one of the. Um, was one of the uh, inspirations for the founding of, of Chanticleer. Um, so, so, but those are you know the, the venues are rare and uh, and the the groups are rare. Um, but it, it, it's a special sound. It's a, it's a it's a very different sound that we're able to create than a mixed choir would be able to create. Just from the matter of fact that that we all have the same instrument inside of us. So the the idea of Christrati or is is very interesting to me because um isn't it you know around you know Handel's time um that you know there would be these procedures that would go through to make boys Christrati and then once they were able to um you know have this high voice for the rest of their life they could make lots and lots of money <laughs> you know seeing the high soprano part but People don't go through those surgeries anymore. Can you talk about that history yeah. um, and how, it, how it's very different today than what it used to be? 
Right. I mean, you know, it's unfortunate. Well, depends on how you look at it. I mean, it's uh, physically unfortunate for those boys who were who were castrated. Um, but if they made it, and of course it, it was a very small percentage, uh, but if they did make it, they were the superstars of their day. I mean, they were they were idolized. They they you know were almost given the equivalent of ticker tape parades when they were when they came to town. Um, and you know, uh, eventually, of course, that 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 tradition died out, thankfully. But all along the way, all, throughout all, that entire time, they were always uh, men who were singing in their falsetto voice, uh, in or or their head voice, um, and they were able to develop that and have it be just as strong and just as uh, just as usable, just as beautiful as as people singing in their tenor or baritone or bass voice. And so it's that tradition which has, has continued, um, and, and of course is what we use, because obviously, um, you know, the the, <laughs> the idea of having, the, the last castrati died out at the very, very beginning of the 1900s, and, and uh, there will probably be no more. <laughs> right. So describe your role as music director for Chanticleer. Well, as music director, my my main role is uh, programming and rehearsing. Um, I I choose all the all the repertoire and then help the guys prepare it. And I do say it's it's help the guys prepare it, sort of steer steer the rehearsals because our rehearsal process is actually quite quite democratic, um, with a lot of discussion going on and everyone sort of putting in their opinions. Um, because in the end, uh, I, I don't, you know, it's an unconducted ensemble. I, I'll be sitting in the audience. Um, so, so part of the rehearsal process is making sure that everybody gets on the same page about about how a piece of music goes. And and again, you know, my role is sort of to help lead that discussion. But it's a discussion that everybody has to take part in because at the end of the day. All those, those those twelve singers need to be able to get up and have the same same idea, the same interpretation of the piece of music in order to have a you know a cohesive performance. Um, and so, a lot of our rehearsal is dedicated to that, to to making sure that we all have the same idea about how a piece of music goes. And how do you choose repertoire for Chanticleer? And what is your favorite type of music um, that that you think is best suited for um, the male chorus? Well. You know, it's it's interesting. Depending on what the concert is, um, the inspiration for for the repertoire choice can come from anywhere. I mean, sometimes concerts are all built around the fact that we want to do one particular piece. Sometimes there's a theme, and then we're, I'm finding the pieces that will fit the theme. Um, with the Christmas concert, uh, which we'll be doing in East Lansing. Um, you know that we it's a little it's somewhat simpler because there's there's somewhat i mean we all know what christmas music is and and we try to do um we try to do a a wide variety of styles and music from different time periods on the program in fact this concert spans about a thousand years from gregorian chant to something that we just commissioned uh a swedish composer jan sandstrom to write for us earlier this summer um and of course there's the traditional carols as well as lesser known especially especially older music uh, music of, of the renaissance and 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 on this concert even slightly older um so it's it's a 
the Christmas concert in particular is a fun process because you just get to delve into this very, very rich trove of music uh, that's been written for, well, for 2,000 years around this time of the year. Um, and and it's just a matter of, of picking through uh, sort of an embarrassing wealth of riches. And, and what is your favorite um, song that Chanticleer will be performing at the Christmas concert uh, this Sunday at 3 p.m.? Oh, boy, that's so Morton. hard. Especially because in some ways, you know, a lot of times you're comparing apples and oranges. It's hard to compare, for example, this brand new piece by by Jan Sandstrom, uh, which I actually think is just is just stunning. It's just uh, he just did a, an amazing job of writing a piece that just evokes. Um, well, it, it's the it's the setting of the first couple verses of the, the Gospel of John. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he just did such an amazing job of, of, of setting this kind of otherworldly sort of text in this sort of almost state of suspension. Um, and so that that's so beautiful, but it's hard to compare that to, say, um, a 14th century early English carol like Exequod Natura, which is so lilting and beautiful in its simplicity and its sort of ancient this is not a word, ancient soundingness <laughs> in the way it sounds so ancient. Um, or to say the, our final number, which is a medley of gospel, uh, gospel and spiritual Christmas songs. So, you know, they're, they're all so very different. It's, it's hard to pick out what your favorite is. But I will say that um, we are doing a piece which I think is certainly this na- one of this nation's favorite choral pieces, which is Franz Beeple's Ave Maria, after it hit our shores in the early 70s, being popularized by the Cornell Glee Club and the Harvard Glee Club and eventually coming to Chanticleer. I think it's probably become one of the most um, the most sung pieces of choral music in the entire, especially modern choral repertoire. And I'm sure many, many uh, singers uh, will have done it in their university or high school or church choirs. And uh, and we're lucky that uh, a lot of people associate it with us because we've been doing it religiously every Christmas for the past 20 years or so. And um, so we'll be doing it again in East Lansing and and uh, hope people will look forward to hearing that. And on average, um, not just at your Christmas concert, but your shows throughout the year, on average, do you usually focus on preserving the you know history and, and having male chorus sing um, more you know songs that were written for male chorus years and years and years ago, or um, do you sing more um, modern pieces that are commissioned specifically for Chanticleer? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Both. Um, especially on our touring programs, both at Christmas and throughout the rest of the year, we try to we do a mixture of both. Um, we always include early music, uh, especially like I said, that's still the bread and butter of sort of our repertoire. Again, that's what why the group was formed in the first place. But that only now uh, constitutes a portion of the program. Um, the rest of it will be yes, music oftentimes that we've commissioned composers to write, especially for us, but also just stuff music from from the regular choral repertoire music that was intended for mixed chorus uh that we sing with all men anyway <laughs> um so yeah a mixture of everything of all those things and do you also sing in the chorus i don't i don't anymore i did for 10 years and uh when 
when Joseph Jennings, who had been the director for well over two decades, uh, retired three years ago, I took over and uh, and music directors being is a big enough job it was hard it would be hard to also have to leap up on stage and sing so I think I'm more useful uh, being a pair of ears out and being able to kind of give feedback from from performances do you do you miss singing <laughs> You know, it's funny, so many people have asked me that. I mean, in a way, yes. I, in a way, yes, um, because it's, it's. oh my goodness, I've, I've been singing on a stage since I was about three years old. Um, but on the other hand, given the task that I have, um, it would be very, it would be very, tiresome i would say or, or very overwhelming to to have to also sing because you know our singers we, we do about a hundred concerts a year and your the way your time is spent and the way what what you have to pay attention to how much sleep you're getting how much what you're eating when you're eating how much you're moving how much you're talking um is 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 very important with regard to how well you're going to be able to perform. And in my role, I mean, I, I have to do lots of educational activities during the daytime uh, on the road, for example, you know, be doing other types of work, and, and it, would be, it, would be, it would be very difficult to um, just keep the, the body uh, in motion uh, that much. Um, so in that respect, I don't, I don't miss it. I don't miss having to do it um, because, again, I think it would be, be a little difficult (laughs) if i could go back and say you know can i just go back to my first year in chanticleer where i was just a just a innocent singer without any additional responsibilities yeah perhaps i might do that but 12 years later uh, i've sort of grown into the role that i that i inhabit now now you talked about um you're also involved in some educational programs can you talk about those oh sure we of course, not during the Christmas season, just because of how many concerts we do. But throughout the rest of the year, um, we do lots of educational activities, um, both in our home base of San Francisco and while we're on the road. Um, these can inc- often include master classes, where where we hear local choirs sing for us, and we give them feedback and try to help them do what they do better. Um, uh, we also do say sort of lecture concerts. These are especially for maybe younger students where we'll sing but also do a lot of talking and a lot of explanation of, of, about, you know, what, what we're singing. Um, we also do day-long choral festivals um, with, say, up to six choirs uh, where uh, they'll each sing for each other, they'll work with us individually, and we'll usually do some, you know, sort of get them, get them massed together and have a grand finale concert in the evening. Um, boy, there's there's also a summer choral workshop at Sonoma State University, just north of San Francisco, which actually we which we hold every other summer. This happens to be a summer. Um, uh, if anyone out there is interested in coming and spending some time in wine country and singing for five days, they can find out information about that on our website, chanticleer.org. So 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 educating, encouraging. And and hopefully inspiring people to to sing and to continue singing, yeah, is very much part of our mission. Just as much as giving concerts or or making recordings is. And and I'm also curious, what are the backgrounds a lot of a lot of the singers in Chanticleer, and how long, um, on average, do a, does a career last um, singing professionally in a chorus? Right. Well, 
of late anyway, although it hasn't always been this way throughout the history of Chanticleer, but of late, mo- most of our singers do did all go to school, um, you know, and have music degrees. Most of them in voice, but not all. We also have people who went to school to be music educators, and we have one person who went all the way through a doctorate in French horn. <laughs> wow. Uh, until he gave it up and became a singer. Um, uh, in the past, we've also had people who, who didn't study uh, music formally, but who, who sang a lot. I think that's probably the, the of the hundred or so people that sang in Chanticleer over its 33-year history. The thing that is, uh, that is similar among all the members is that everybody did a lot of singing. Everybody had had a lot of experience singing in lots of different ensembles before joining Chanticleer. Um, and so... so that's where that you know that's where the the, the bulk of the of the of the, of the uh, intelligence behind what we do comes from. Um, as far as the length of of a career in Chanticleer, it really depends. Actually, right now we have our longest serving member in history. It's Eric Alatori, our our lowest base. It's his twenty first season this year, and um, so that's sort of a record. Uh, as far as length goes, and over the years there have been members who've only have only sung for uh, one or two seasons. Um, the difference in length depends a lot upon how how happy people are um, with the lifestyle of being a Chanticleer, because it's not just a job; it's it's definitely a life. You know, you're spending half of the year on the road. You're spending an inordinate amount of time with your eleven fellow singers, um, and you know, it can be uh, it can be trying at times. It can be difficult, and it can also be incredibly exciting, uh, seeing the world and whatnot. But eventually, usually, people come to a point in their lives when they say, "You know, I'd really like to have a dog, <laughs> <laughs> or have a plant, or <laughs> a plant, you know, or do something, or do something else which requires you to stay put, you know, and and not be constantly on the move." And um, and so people make their make their exit strategies and and usually you know leave all the richer and you know having having had wonderful experiences and then some people like Eric Alatori or myself we sort of just stick with it you know we the the, the life on the road doesn't really get tiring it's it still remains exciting and uh, getting to getting to see new places and meet new people continues to be continues to be uh, you know why we get up in the morning and my final question is, what are you most excited for in regards to this Christmas tour? Well, what I get excited for every year, and I have now for 12 years, what I get excited about at, at Christmas time is the fact that, that we're, gonna, we're going to see so many people. We're going to share music with so many people. And for some reason, at this time of the year, people seem to be more more open and receptive to music. I think, you know, music uh, plays a very important part uh, during this time. As we all know, all you have to do is walk into a shopping mall and, <laughs> and hear what's being played over the, over the speakers to know that, that, that music is very much part of, of our tradition during the month, you know, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. And we want to provide for our audiences the very best of that experience and and I love I love seeing audiences sort of slow down 
get out of the hurly-burly of this mad time and really be able to just have a moment of, of peace and serenity, um, which our concerts hopefully provide. And, and as I said, because of the year, they, people want this. They want to feel the Christmas spirit, feel the holiday spirit, share it with mem- other members of their community, and, and we're able to provide that. And it's, it's a very, it's, it's an incredible experience um, for us as singers to be able to do that. Um, and hopefully everyone leaves just a little jollier, a little merrier, and, and is able to, uh, you know, to be, find something inspirational at this time of year. Well, on the phone is Matt Altman. He is the music director of Chanticleer. Chanticleer will be performing a Christmas show at the Wharton Center this Sunday at 3 p.m. Thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm out of here. Th- thanks again, man. It was good. Wait, time. you were uh, you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are you, are you good to drive? Heck yeah! I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man. You sure? I mean, I can call a cab, or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home. Yeah, you know? yeah. Don't worry. I'm good. Okay. Uh, hey, text me when you get back. Okay. Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. Ever. A message from 88.9 Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane. In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs. An army of new songs are called to battle. And only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10. Sit or spit. Only on Impact 89 FM. 
Now, back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the news lately, uh, Lieutenant Governor-elect Brian Kelly is asking for autism insurance reform. In the studio to talk about autism as well as its treatments is Brooke Ingersoll. She is with the Department of Psychology who researches autism treatments. Welcome to the show. Uh, welcome. Thank you. So I guess just to introduce yourself, talk about the research you've done so far. Um, well, I am... Uh, particularly interested in early interventions, so interventions for the uh, youngest children that are diagnosed with autism, and that is generally children um, about ages two to three, because we are not particularly good at picking it up in children under two. And I'm I'm particularly interested in interventions that can focus on improving social communication skills. And what that means um, are skills that children use to connect with others socially as well as to communicate. Um, so language... Um, social engagement with a, an adult or peers, play skills, imitation skills. And and you've written about two different approaches to um, autism treatment. One is behavioral and the other one is developmental. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about those differences? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of these, dis- a lot of the differences are actually theoretical and semantic more than they are actually practical. Um, but in the autism intervention field, there has been generally a big split between people that have advocated a developmental approach to intervention versus a behavioral approach to intervention. And the behavioral approach to intervention has quite a bit more research behind it. It's uh, got quite a bit of a longer track record and has been um, used in the field for quite a few uh, more years. And so individuals that come from a behavioral perspective have uh, typically um, not spent as much time focusing on other 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 ways of treating autism. Um, but when we actually look at how the interventions are actually implemented, those individuals that are actually providing the intervention services, in many cases, they're doing a lot of the same types of techniques. And so um, one of the things I've been really interested in is rather than coming at it from a theore- coming at the intervention from a theoretical perspective, really trying to look at what techniques work um, that are shared by these two different theoretical um, approaches to intervention, as well as ways they might differ a little bit, because it's possible that those areas where they differ may actually be um, influential in terms of children outcomes. Uh, so basically what we've been interested in is rather than testing one intervention type against another intervention type to really break down those interventions into their component parts and really look at what are those individual components that you're doing and how do those influence child outcomes. So people who do the different types of inf- uh, interventions, whether they be behavioral or developmental, do you see different types of results from the different types of approaches? Well, you know, if you if you read about what people say about their interventions, you would... You would possibly believe so. But the reality is, um, across the many different types of interventions that have been developed and marketed for children with autism, we see about 50% of children have very good outcomes, and a small portion of children don't make much progress, and a, you know, a portion of children tend to get better but not as well as um, you know, we, we would like them to like to see them get. So it uh, we don't really know exactly, because we're not doing a lot of comparative studies, um, whether one child does better in one intervention than the other, but we would imagine there probably would be some differences in terms of how the interventions would affect children, but we just don't know what those are yet. So I see the, the, the words intervention and treatments being used interchangeably. Yeah. And when I think of treatment, I think if you treat someone for autism, then it is gone. Right. 
Is that the case? I tend to use the term intervention. Um, there are definitely cases where there are children that have developed um, skills such that as they get older, they are no longer meeting criteria for autism, but that is a really small portion of the kids. Um, it's much more uh, common to see children who make very substantial gains, but who still have some subtle deficits that would still place them on the autism spectrum. Now, I often hear of children um, in regards to autism, but rarely do I hear about adults. That's true. Um, and I think some of that is because there has been a uh, pretty significant focus on trying to get intervention to our kids early, because we do have evidence that the earlier children are identified and intervened with, the better their outcomes are. So the outcomes for adults who were diagnosed as children, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, have not been particularly good. Um, but we do have quite a bit of evidence to suggest that some of these kids that are coming up now are actually having better outcomes. Okay. And, and just so our, all our listeners are on the same page, how would you describe what autism is and what are some misconceptions about autism? Uh, good question. Well, autism is a developmental disability um, that is neurologically driven, which means um, there's something different about the, how the brain processes information. And we see symptoms of autism appearing within the first three years of life. So um, it's not like you can go out and get a blood test and say, oh, this child has autism. All of, the, um, all of the indicators of autism are behavioral. So you have to observe and see what types of skills the child is using. And that really determines whether or not they meet a, um, a, the criteria for autism. I think that uh, the, the behaviors that are most closely, I mean, there's a, a large number of behaviors that um, are involved in a diagnosis, but the types of behaviors that people um, think of when they think of a diagnosis of autism is problems in three core areas, um, communication or language. Um, so a, a good portion of children um, with autism uh, are, are actually never go on to develop good functional language. So about 25% of children never develop functional language. Those individuals that do develop language often have very unusual language features. Um, they have difficulty holding on conversations. Their language may seem very stilted. Um, it may be um, uh, focused on one particular topic of interest. We also see um, individuals having a significant dif uh, difficulty interacting with other people. So they don't show an interest in ch other children when they're children. As they get older, they may not be interested in developing romantic relationships. Um, interpersonal relationships with others tend to be very stressful or um, n not enjoyable. And then we also see some um, behaviors that are uh, uh, where individuals have um, interests that are obsessive. So they may be particularly interested in trains or train schedules to a point where it becomes very all-consuming. Um, in younger children, sometimes we see that type of behavior in um, unusual um, uh, uh, mannerisms or, um, you know, spinning or spinning um, objects or flapping their hands or um, rocking their body back and forth. Now, I know there's been a lot of different studies that come out that, that come up with different theories about mm -hmm. how autism may be developed or, or come about. Um, what are some that you're most familiar with those, those studies, and, and what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think that the best supported research suggests that autism has a genetic component. Um, we see that um, autism does tend to run in families. Um, so if you have one child with autism, you have an increased likelihood that another child has either autism or um, deficits that may be related to autism, but not a full-blown uh, syndrome. Um, so we know that there's definitely a genetic component to it. Um, 
in terms of the different theories, you know, there's something different about the way the brain develops. And if we look across all the different studies, there have been a number of different hypotheses put forward about that might be due to this brain system or this brain structure. Um, but if you look across these studies, what you find is there's just significant differences in the brains. It's really hard to know whether or not um, differences in functioning of one brain system is due to something different about that brain system or whether that's a um, downstream consequence of something else going wrong that then affects that part of the brain. Um, so I think some of the, the one theory that I think um, it makes some sense uh, kind of putting all of these um, different theories together is that there's something that goes on between the sort of first and second year of life um, where the typical neural pruning, which is when your neurons form connections as you're developing, and then at a, po a certain point, some of those connections that aren't very useful start to die back to kind of um, make it uh, such that the neural connections are much more efficient and effective. Um, that there may be a lack of that neural pruning going on, so that there may be a lot of extra noise in the system. And that could explain some of the many differences we see in terms of brain function. So going back to what, what we've been seeing um, in the Michigan news, at least, um, is that Lieutenant Governor-elect mm -hmm. Brian Kelly is asking for autism insurance reform. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think this is a really good move. Michigan, if we do pass this legislation, would be about in the middle of the states in terms of other states that have passed it. I, I can't remember which state, what number we would be, but I know that there have been at least 15 other states that have passed something like this. Um, and I think it would really um, take a step towards um, helping families be able to access the types of services that they need for their children. So what we know from the intervention research is that with intervention, a good portion of children make significant improvement. Um, but what we also know is it's oftentimes very expensive and very hard to find people that, um, that provide those services um, because we don't have good ways of paying for it, at least in the state of Michigan. So if we were able to pass this reform, this would require... Um, insurance companies to cover the cost of therapies um, for these children and adults. And, and one other thing I should say is that what we often find, um, and I, I, I've seen this in um, several states, which is services that are provided for individuals that have other diagnoses are not provided for individuals with autism. So for example, if you have a young child who has a language delay and your insurance covers language services, if your child just has a language delay, the insurance would cover it. But if your child has a diagnosis of autism, some insurances will not provide that same service for a child that has a diagnosis of autism. And so this um, insurance would not only require them to cover evidence-based therapy for children with autism, but also require them to provide the services that they would provide for a child with another diagnosis. No, I feel like over the years I've seen a lot more, um, whether in newspapers or on television or, or media outlets, just mm -hmm. about autism in mm -hmm. general and different studies that come out um, and the different theories behind it. Um, so I'm wondering, are people becoming more aware of it? And where do you think um, the future of autism research is going and um, the different services that can be provided for those with autism? There has definitely been a, a significant increase in the amount of autism awareness that is out there. Um, that has gone um, part and parcel with uh, also an increase in the number of diagnosed cases of autism. And um, so I think as the number of individuals in our society um, a larger number of individuals in our society have autism, so that has also increased awareness. Um, and I, I think that 
um, the increased focus on autism is only a positive thing in terms of the amount of uh, different types of research that can be um, uh, pushed. And I think probably our next step is since we do have a number of effective um, interventions for individuals with autism is to really try and identify which interventions are best for an individual. Um, at this point, we just know we have some interventions that work, but we don't exactly know for whom. I also think um, an area where we will see in the next, say, 10 years um, some pretty substantial um, uh, gains in knowledge are in the biomedical treatment of autism. Um, at this point, the only interventions that we really know to be effective are behavioral or educational. Um, although we are getting a much better understanding of different systems that may be affected in autism. So, for example, um, psychopharmacology has made um, uh, some advances recently in terms of how to treat certain types of um, behavioral deficits in autism, particularly um, in terms of uh, tantrums and aggressive behavior. So I, I think hopefully as we have a better understanding of um, the neurological and biological causes of autism, we'll see some improvements in that type of treatment. Well, in the studio is Brooke Ingersoll. She is with the Department of Psychology, and she researches autism treatments. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building. Without all that smoking. Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, this is William Langford, and tonight I'll be presenting to you both a poem and a short story about Michigan State University. Recently, in October, I was contacted by the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, Karen Verst, to prepare a poem or a performance for the groundbreaking for the new addition to Wells Hall. This addition is scheduled to be completed sometime uh, in 2011, approximately June or so, but it's going to add, I believe, 200,000 square feet to Wells Hall. Most importantly, a visible front and a back to Wells Hall. 
I remember uh, the provost, Kim Wilcox, telling us that uh, when he was here at MSU, before there were cell phones, students would ask, uh, they'd say, hey, let's meet in the front of Wells Hall. And imagine how difficult that was uh, prior to the advent of cell phones and with the manner of the construction of Wells Hall. In selecting a performer for the event, for the groundbreaking, uh, I was told that the dean thought of graduate students, of students who are in one of the university's many language programs, as the College of Arts and Letters houses many, uh, or perhaps all, of the university's language programs, as does Wells Hall support them uh, with international TAs and learning programs for them. That said, um, they arrived upon myself as the selection uh, for that event, uh, believing that my own uh, penchant for, uh, for words, for writing, uh, fit the event appropriately. Uh, I was given just a little bit of direction in order to, to write this piece. Uh, it is meant to align with themes of language, of words, of the utilization of the Wells Hall space for mm, intercultural bonding, uh, interaction, etc. So I wrote uh, Legion, and this is it. We come here to be a part of a legend. This land was granted for that purpose. A seed was sown, and Kinsley Bingham called us a college. We come here to be a part of a legend. Four years forth from gaining a four-year curriculum, our forefather Spartans marched into civil war. We come here to be a part of a legend. Booker T. Washington commenced the class of 1900. And thousands upon thousands of days since, we are writing. If MSU teaches but one skill, it is that, writing, scribing wildly into the future. And it is written, in the tremble of 46,000 footsteps, it is written in classrooms. Watch that professor sketch something epic-like. I've seen equations like, black and white-like, poetry, sprawl like fire bursts, bright against the bubble that says change is bad. We are the unstoppable force behind a movable object, that being renewal, that being progress. Come press our passion into the point of a spade, and we will dig trenches at our feet. Line them with language and pack them with prose. Send this Spartan legion marching in rows towards a dawn of shapelessness, and we will mold it into fraternity, and we will mold it with mortar into a road that begins here. 53,187 days into a legend that we live. Let us break ground like bread among us, that we might be remembered for a singular step forward. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was William Langford. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.